How old were you when you were first confronted with that cold, hard reality that bunnies don't lay eggs? <laughs> Not even chocolate ones. The truth hurts, doesn't it? When we were young, we believed in all sorts of wonderful things that we found out later on were simply not true. For me, one of the biggest was the belief that if I went to a certain university, that I was going to find the girl of my dreams. At the beginning of each semester, I wondered if that was going to be the time when the clouds parted and those rays came down, breaking through, cascading, glorious light on that angelic figure that was designed special just for me. <laughs> Four years later, I stepped out onto the platform to receive my diploma, and I remember thinking, well, I guess I'm going to be single for a while. If I wasn't able to find a girlfriend at a place where there are at least four girls for every guy, then I'm toast. You've heard that phrase, hopeless, romantic. There, there wasn't much romance there, but there was hopeless, let me tell you. <laughs> and that's when I stopped believing, stopped hoping, and began to embrace a sort of romantic skepticism. Have you ever been let down? Have you experienced disappointment in life? Of course you have. Maybe there was once a time when too good to be true was not part of your vocabulary. And you were like a barrelman up in the crow's nest of a tall ship, just scanning the horizon, longing for the moment where you were going to get to say those words, Land ho! It's finally here! It's finally happened! But those days are long gone. Disappointment let down. That's the feeling some people have when it comes to Jesus. Maybe you're one of those who grew up in the church. Maybe you attended some type of church function, program. Maybe it was a vacation Bible school. Maybe you had a close relative who shared with you the story about Jesus, about how God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to live for 33 or so years and suffer and die on a cross for you. But then, three days later, he rose from the dead. And if you just believe in him, if you just trust in him, then you'll get to go to heaven someday. Maybe you've heard that, or maybe you heard some sort of version of that. But it's been quite a while since then. And there have been a few miles that have been put on the odometer and you've learned a thing or two about how the world works and the fairy tales that you once trusted in. Well, you know those to be something, well, they're just fairy tales. You know, there's a certain level of skepticism that we expect to see in people as they get older, right? If someone believes everything that they hear, everything that they watch on YouTube or, or, or hear from the media or, or those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities that come in from Nigeria and land in our inbox, if they believe all those things, you look at them and you say, gullible, maybe? If they haven't learned how the world works, if they don't wise up sooner or later, they're going to end up getting scammed. They're going to look really, really foolish. 
There was a guy who, after Jesus was crucified, felt really, really foolish. You see, he had bought into this whole thing that Jesus was this special one who was sent from God to right all the wrongs in the world. This is incredible. He had witnessed evidence. He had seen Jesus do incredible things, teach incredible things, claim incredible things, and he believed it. He trusted it. He was going to follow Jesus all the way to the top. In fact, he didn't just believe it. He staked all that he had on it. Just like the 11 other guys that followed Jesus closely, he had walked away from his former life. He Hopes and dreams, source of income, maybe, maybe even reputation or good standing with his family. We don't know all of the details. It, it didn't matter. In his mind, if Jesus was really who he said he was, if he was the Messiah, the anointed one of God, and there's some good evidence pointing to that, then Jesus was going to win. He was going to triumph. Sure, there might be some opposition, but Jesus was going to overcome all of that. But now he's gone. Publicly humiliated, the recipient of one of the lowest most excruciating, most disgusting, most shameful forms of execution. And now his body is wrapped up tight, sealed up tight in a tomb with guards posted in front of it 24-7. It's over. Or was it? After what happened to Jesus, Thomas may have thought to himself, I, I was one of his followers. People saw me with him. They saw me listening to that, him. They saw me talking with him. They saw me approving of the things that they did, that he did. If, if they did this to Jesus, then isn't it just a matter of time before they come looking for guys like me? Do you feel it? The regret, the shame, the fear, the overwhelming sense of loss and disappointment. When someone has had that kind of experience, it's not difficult to see why. They might be a little reluctant, maybe even a little skeptical the next time around, right? That was Thomas. He had the makings of a let-down, hardened skeptic. Can you relate? Is there any hope for skeptics? Does God care about those who have seen the more difficult side of life and find it challenging to believe? Or is faith in Jesus just something for the dreamers? Is it the irrational optimists that are to have faith? People who just believe in whatever they wish to be true. Take a look at what happens to Thomas. John chapter 20, verse 24. That's where we're kind of going to hang out this morning. Says this, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Thomas, the devout follower of Jesus, had transformed into Thomas the skeptic. Now, maybe you've heard people say things like, don't be a doubting Thomas. <laughs> maybe you yourself have not wanted to emulate Thomas in your life. But, you know, I think Thomas has kind of gotten a bad rap. If you, if you had been through all of that, you know, I'm sure Thomas wanted to believe. But he'd just been so badly burned that wisdom told him it doesn't make sense to believe I don't want to be blindsided again. When he first decided to follow Jesus, he had seen evidence, right? Jesus was there. Jesus was alive. Jesus was doing incredible things. But now he's dead. Now he's gone. And people don't just rise from the dead. Yeah, sure, Jesus may have done some pretty neat things. Maybe he healed some people. Maybe he even raised some people back from the dead. But no one in their right mind would think that Jesus could do that same sort of thing for himself now that he's dead. He's dead! It's done! And dead people can't do anything to help themselves, let alone other people. It just doesn't happen that way. So when uh, the other disciples come up and tell him that they saw Jesus, Thomas must have been thinking, you're out of your minds. He must have just been thinking, these poor guys, I, I, I know, I know what it's like, guys. This has been in horrible, horrific, what we have just experienced. You, you must be delusional, you must be hallucinating. Either that, or you've been duped by some sort of look-alike. You just want it to be so bad. You saw that guy over here, and he had a beard, so you thought he was Jesus. I get it. Or maybe this is like that movie, The Prestige. Have you seen it? It's, it's rather old. Spoiler alert here. Maybe Jesus had a secret twin brother could be it. Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He knew that the body had been placed in the tomb, and that body had very, very distinct wounds. So logically, in his mind, it made perfect sense that if they had seen Jesus, if Jesus is out there somehow walking around, then certainly he would have those same scars. Is there anything wrong with that? To want some type of evidence. Maybe you're one of those with functioning synapses, the ability to put two and two together, and you're one of those that doesn't believe just because everybody else is doing it, and you need to have some evidence before you take the plunge. Something tells you that this is more than, this gotta be more than just wishful thinking or blind faith that I'm buying into. After having been told once or twice, maybe a few more times by a couple girls, a few girls. Can't we just be friends? <laughs> I had become myself somewhat of a skeptic, and that's why when this really cute girl came onto the scene, people started nudging me, hey, hey, why don't you ask her out? <laughs> I hesitated. It wasn't that I didn't want to, it was that I was so fried from taking risks and being let down that if, if I was going to do that again, I needed some assurances. I needed some, some evidence that she was at least interested before I walk out there onto that shaky limb. Evidence. 
Is it such a bad thing? Or is it wrong to use our brains to examine, to consider, to form conclusions and base what we believe and what we do on that? Is that wrong? Or is faith just about believing something that we imagine or hope to be true? Let's read on. Verse 26. Eight days later, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. A week later, they're in a room, the doors are locked, and that's when something happened that never happened before, at least not to our knowledge. Jesus appears out of nowhere. He didn't come through the door. He wasn't hiding in some dark corner. He wasn't hiding behind the sofa. He just appears. Wow. And you can imagine the shock that everyone was experiencing. No one more shocked, though, than Thomas. Remember how they thought? Maybe if you remember, if you've been to Sunday school or you've been to church for a little while, Jesus walking out there on the water, they're in a boat, and they think, that's a ghost, it's a ghost. Thomas must have thought, this is a ghost. It's a ghost or some type of hallucination I'm seeing here. When was the last time I went to the optometrist? Whatever it was, it speaks. It says something. It says, peace be with you. Greetings, I come in peace. Well, maybe it was more like shalom which often connotated total well-being before God. That be with you. What What an appropriate phrase. What an incredibly loaded phrase. Because if Jesus actually was Jesus, and that was Jesus right there, if he's actually alive, and if he actually accomplished what he claimed to have come for, dying on the cross for the forgiveness of humanity's sins so the relationship with God might be brought to peace, then this common everyday greeting had taken on a whole new meaning. Then the ghost or the hallucination or whatever it was turns to Thomas. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but belief. (laughs) Whoa, okay. If this is a ghost, if this is a hallucination, it's about to get found out, right? We all know that when that sun-scorched, cracked-lipped, tattered-clothes-wearing guy, he leaps out for that mirage, he ends up swimming in a pool of sand. Was this the real Jesus? Thomas was given an invitation to find out. Notice, Jesus doesn't lay into him. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't reprimand him for not believing or having blind faith. No, he meets him where he is at. And he invites him to examine for himself the evidence. It's me. It's the one and only Jesus standing here before you in this room. Notice also, Jesus doesn't have to ask whether or not Thomas had any doubts. He knew it. He knew it. Not only did he know it, he wasn't offended by it. Could it be that he knows exactly the kind of questions and concerns that you may have? 
Could it be that he's not bothered by them? Could it be that he doesn't expect you to have blind faith, but has offered evidence for you to base your trust upon? Could it be that you just need to reach out for it, consider it, examine it, be open to the possibility that it just might be the truth and it just might change everything? Jesus called Thomas to believe. Maybe he is calling you to do the same. Now, we don't know what Thomas did after that. We don't know what he saw. We don't know what he touched or if he touched anything. All we know is what he said. And what did he say? Verse 28, then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, those who teach that Jesus is not God, they will tell you that what Thomas was actually saying here was uh, not a statement of belief. He was simply saying, wow, it was a statement of surprise. My God, this is amazing. Jesus, you're actually alive. That's cool. Show me how you did that. I don't think that's what was going on here. I think it's very, very unlikely that a devout Jew would have ever said anything like that. I think it's very, very unlikely that Jesus would have approved of it or just ignored it. And the word and that's in there, that's kind of the nail in the coffin. Nobody says this. I hear, oh my God, or Jesus this, or Jesus that, but I don't hear my Lord and my God. That wasn't, that's not a common phrase today. It wasn't common back then. But there is something concerning here. Why would Thomas say this? Why does he jump to this conclusion rather than just shouting out, Yes, Jesus, you're alive. The other guys were right. I'm so sorry I didn't believe in you. All right, where do we go now? What do we do now? Can we eat something? Can we get food brought in? Let's go. Why does he jump to that conclusion from Jesus, you're alive, to simply my Lord and my God? Maybe the fact that a whole week had gone by since the other guys came to him and said, we saw Jesus alive and this moment here where he's actually standing there face to face with Jesus, maybe that had something to do with it. Eight days is a long time to wait for confirmation it's a long time to think. It's a long time to wonder. It's a long time to recall all of those experiences that you had with Jesus and maybe even recall some of the things that he said while you were with him. Yes, his first thought when the disciples said that was, yeah, right. But over the course of those eight days, I wonder if he wondered, what if it's true? What does that mean? He had been there when Jesus said things like, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He was there when Jesus said, all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Or when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Everyone knew what I am meant. 
Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Oh, wait, what about that time when we were in that house and the roof started opening up? It, it was crazy. This, this guy started being lowered down to the ground and he's laying there on the ground. We could tell he couldn't walk. And we were all expecting Jesus to do something. Jesus didn't do what we expected. Everyone thought he was going to say, all right, get up and get out. No, he said, your sins are forgiven. How could Jesus do that? Only God can forgive sins. We all know that. If Jesus is alive, what does this mean? Could it be that he actually is who he said he was? I want to press pause just for a quick moment here because this is something really, really important for us to think about. Everyone here in their lifetime has done something to hurt someone else, right? And needed that person's forgiveness, I've done it, you've done it, I'm sure you've done it. Apparently, even that guy who was lowered down, that crippled person who was lowered down before Jesus, he had done it. But what did that have to do with Jesus? Why would Jesus say, your sins are forgiven? Jesus doesn't need to forgive his sins, does he? I mean, he, he, they just met. He hadn't done anything to Jesus. Was this some long-lost childhood friend who played jokes on Jesus way back when? No, we don't have any evidence of that. The only one who can forgive a person's sins or some wrong that has been done to them is the person who was wronged, right? If you turn to the person next to you and you slap them in the face, now don't do this. I come up to you and say, it's okay, I forgive you. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't do anything. I'm not the one that should be forgiving you. It's the person with the red cheek sitting right next to you, now looking appalled, right? Okay, so how is it that Jesus forgives this paralyzed guy's sins? Well, he can do that because any wrong, any sin that you or I have done any, any wrong thought, any wrong action, any wrong word before anything else is wrong against God. Think about it. If God made you, and your first job is to love God with everything that you've got, right? The first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and, yeah, then anything that you do that violates that love, anything that is disobedient, anything that is out of step with the way that God designed you, anything that is not in line with the way that God intends you to live, then that is first and foremost against God. That's what King David said when he had stolen away another man's wife, when he had gotten her pregnant, when he had her husband murdered. That guy really blew it. In Psalm 51.4, he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. D.A. Carson writes this. What makes sin, sin, what makes it so profoundly heinous, what makes it so deeply repugnant and culpable is that it is offense against God. Now, if that's true, 
then that means even if the person with the red cheek sitting next to you forgives you, you're still not completely forgiven, are you? If you haven't been forgiven by God, then even the forgiveness your neighbor has given you, it's not enough. In other words, it's great to be forgiven by other people, people that we have hurt, but unless you've made things right with God, then any relief that you feel from the guilt that you were feeling, that's just a false sense of peace. And you still have unfinished business to attend to. I wonder if there's maybe someone listening to this right now, maybe even in this room, who's yet to make peace or experience that forgiveness with God. Let's jump back to Thomas. Thomas knew all this. He knew about that incident. He was there when that man got lowered in through that roof. He knew that God was the only one who can forgive sins. So as he stood there face to face with Jesus, seeing the evidence that, yes, this really is Jesus. He is alive. He's here. And after spending a week considering all those things that Jesus had said and done, that's when he declares, my Lord and my God. He knew what this meant. It meant not only that Jesus was truly alive, but that Jesus was who he said he was. In an instant, he was transformed from the wounded, disillusioned, hopeless skeptic into a wholehearted believer. How would you respond if evidence that validated Jesus' claims was staring you right in the face? In verse 29, we read, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Yes, Thomas believed because he saw the evidence, right? He saw, maybe he touched. You and I don't have that advantage, do we? We don't have it. And maybe you've thought, if only there was that kind of evidence, if only there was some evidence that perhaps I would come to the same conclusions as Thomas did. If only God would have given me some sort of basis to believe in him. Bummer. You see, we can't say that, though. Because even though we may not have had the chance to see with our own eyes and touch with our own hands, we've all been given the evidence that we need, and we have it. Right here, we have eyewitness account after eyewitness account that has been written down and consolidated here in one book. And we not only have one author's account of what Jesus said and what he did and what was done to him, we have four of them. They're all different, and yet they all corroborate each other. Ever wonder why there are four separate Gospels? Why don't we have just one? Wouldn't it be easier that way? It's the same reason that you want to have more than one testimony in a court of law. They either discredit or they verify the story that is being told. So you you might convince that jury beyond a reasonable doubt the claim that is being stated that it is in fact either the truth or a lie. How can Jesus say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe? He can say that because even though we have not seen and maybe haven't touched, those who believe without seeing 
have evidence that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation, which includes the testimony of even skeptics like Thomas, that Jesus is alive and he is who he claimed to be. John writes immediately after Jesus says this to Thomas, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The evidence, the primary thing that Christians base their faith on is right here in the testimonies that we have on record and on the countless geographical and historical and archaeological corroborating details outside of this book. There's a lot there. But these are written so that you may believe what was written about Thomas, what was recorded here which may have led to a rather negative reputation that he has lived with for a long time. All of this is written so that you might believe. The question is, what will you do with the evidence before you? Have you even looked at it? Have you considered it? Have you carefully weighed all of the details and entertained the possibility that what is written here might actually be true or have you decided to fold your arms and close your eyes and say, ah, I'm quite happy with what my beliefs and my lifestyle right now, thank you very much. I don't need Jesus stepping in and messing everything up. If that's the case, then that truly is unfortunate because as John said, it is in believing that life is truly found. It wasn't until uh, someone very, very close to that girl came up to me and said, uh, hey, just so you know, if you asked her out, she wouldn't say no. <laughs> and that was it. That was all it took for this romantic skeptic to undergo this transformation. The evidence was there. There was reason to hope. It was staring me right in the face. The only thing left for me was to cross the line. Have you crossed the line? There are all kinds of skeptics out there because there are no shortage of letdowns out there. There is good reason to be skeptical. You've been let down probably in ways that I cannot fully even understand or even relate to. Thankfully, Jesus does. He does. And he's ready to meet you where you are. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. My prayer for you is that like Thomas, you might see evidence, search for evidence, consider evidence that is staring you right in the face, that is there waiting for you, urging you to see and believe, and that you would respond honestly, openly, humbly, happily, 
my Lord and my God. For those of us who have said those words, who have placed our trust in the Savior, let's spend a moment reminding ourselves of our great need and how that need was wonderfully, astonishingly met as Jesus Christ went to the cross and then victoriously rose from the grave. This time is for believers. Because as we take this bread and this juice, we're reminding ourselves what Jesus did. And not only are we reminding ourselves of it, like Thomas, it's personal. Thomas didn't say, oh, the Lord and God. No, he said, my Lord and my God. As we take this, we say, Jesus is my Lord. He is my God. It's his body, which is represented here by this little tiny piece of bread that I needed, the sacrifice that he made. I would still be bearing an incredible weight of guilt on my shoulders were it not for the sacrifice Jesus made because that sacrifice he made, he made in my place. It was me that was supposed to be up on that cross. It was me that was supposed to be punished for my sins, but it wasn't me. It was Jesus. Thank you. And as we turn over to the juice, we think of the blood that was shed. That should have been mine. But his blood that was shed is the thing that cleanses us from our sins. We're not only declared not guilty, we're made righteous, fully acceptable in God's sight because of Jesus. What an incredible, awesome thing it is for us to have the opportunity to take communion on Easter Sunday. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you right now. And Lord, we're examining our hearts. We're looking at ourselves and we're thinking about what we did this morning or this past week or this past month or maybe something way back in the past that we just cannot let go of and we're still feeling the guilt of, Lord. And we look at that and we recognize that those things are the things that Jesus came and died for that we might not feel their burden any longer. Not only feel their burden, we might not be held accountable for any longer, Lord, and we might be given the incredible hope of knowing that our relationship with you has been restored and that this earth is not the end. It is not our home. We're on our way. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to remember what he has done for us this morning. Let's open up the bread, hold it in our hands. It's something tangible, it's nothing magical, but it is a reminder of what, is, what has powerfully taken place on your behalf. Let's take it together.
just before he died, he was with his disciples. And he took wine and essentially said, this represents my blood, which establishes a new covenant between you and your maker. The blood that Jesus shed on our behalf makes us right with God. And by placing our trust in him, we express faith and are washed clean. Let's take this in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you did in showing your great love. While we were still sinners, Lord, you sent Jesus Christ to this earth, <laughs> this, this sad earth, this sad sin-plagued sin earth, Lord. Jesus came and lived and suffered and died on our behalf. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that that hope is not a blind hope. It is not an imaginary fairy tale, Lord. When Jesus rose from the grave, he showed us all. The mission was accomplished. And we are evidence of that. We thank you. We praise you. We want to worship you now. In Christ's name, amen.